thousands of objects in space. None of them, almost none of them, probably 0.0.01% are actually designed to be grappled, okay? To, Correct. To be grabbed onto. So how do we solve that problem? Because we can't just go and attach a bunch of different docking plates all the time. We can't do, we just can't, there's just too much. So the way that we're solving that problem, and this is going to start tweaking your noodle a little bit. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, podcasters. Well, isn't this turning out to be an interesting week? The Federal Aviation Administration has given SpaceX the green light to conduct its second Starship test. While there is some drama surrounding SpaceX and its Boca Chica, Texas installation Starbase, that's not what this episode is about. Instead, we're taking a look at one of SpaceX's newest customers, Rogue Space Systems. A few days back, it launched its Barry 1 satellite aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket out of Vandenberg Space Force Base. Barry 1 was one of 90 spacecraft, that's 9-0, that the Transporter 9 mission lofted into orbit. This is a major, even enviable milestone for Rogue because the company is only a few years old. It's also not a terribly well-known company across the commercial space scene. It's not located in the usual space or bootstrapping locales like Silicon Valley or New Mexico. Its origin story is definitely different, but the Space Force has absolutely been paying attention, and the Department of the Air Force has rewarded Rogue with paying contracts to develop a fleet of what the founder calls Orbots, or Orbital Robots. The closest comparison I can make to illustrate Rogue's Orbot concept is Dyson. So to explain, let's stick with Dyson's corded vacuum cleaner line of products. They're easily identifiable by that ball-shaped wheel and the powerful cyclone engine that looks like it came off of a jet plane. Both are attached to the vehicle assembly. So over the years, the ball and the cyclone engine have gone through a ton of iterations. That's pretty standard for any machine company. But what sets Dyson apart from the rest of the vacuum market are the attachments, those interchangeable and sometimes stackable tools that expand what a Dyson vacuum cleaner can do beyond cleaning the floor. You can now use the latest upright corded Dyson to suck dirt out of your wall-to-wall carpet and also groom your pet with a hose-connected pet brush. Rogue's plan is to design build, launch, and iterate satellite buses that also include the ability to create, as in manufacture in situ, the right tool for the right job on orbit. And these buses can also carry customer payloads like it's just done for Evo Limited on the Barry One. To better understand the company and why the Department of Defense is so interested in the technology it's developing, I spoke with Rogue's founder, Jeremy Grimmett. Here's our conversation. Hey, Jeremy. I've been waiting a while for just the right opportunity to have you on the podcast. So welcome. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, this is uh, both air and opportunity. So now there's nothing separating us. So uh, here we go. 
Here we go. So, Jeremy, you are leading an upstart, a very successful one, of a space company out of New Hampshire. That's not the usual venture capitalist rich environment, say, like Silicon Valley or Florida. So, first, I'd like to get to know a little about you. Introduce yourself, the easy stuff, like where you're from, what you do, and where you do it. So um, I'm Jeremy Grimmett. I'm CEO of Rogue Space Systems. I grew up in deep south Louisiana uh, in a little town called Lawtel, Louisiana, about three hours west of New Orleans. Um, I moved to New Hampshire in 2012 in the middle of a snowstorm on leap year. Uh, when the plane landed, it was kind of funny because whenever the plane landed, uh, they had to pull up very quickly to avoid hitting a snowplow in the middle of the blizzard. So that was my welcome to New Hampshire. I love it up there. It's been amazing ever since. And uh, I think that Rogue's been very successful uh, in terms of building the team and getting the traction that we're, we're, we're getting. Uh, but I'm gonna see us as successful when we're turning a profit. So that, that's, that's kind of how I see things. But uh, we have been very successful in the things that we have done to date. So that's kind of how I see it. And I hear from here and there that you have a background in IT and cyber. So what inspired you, motivated you to take the plunge and join the space economy? Was there a light bulb moment? Well, I, I, it's, I mean, I, my story is almost the same as pretty much everybody else that's in space. You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. When I was a kid, I wanted to do this, that, and the other. And whenever I was a kid, yeah, I wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, but I actually wanted to be an aerospace engineer. My, my dream job was to work at uh, Lockheed Skunk Works. That was my goal. Um, but life happens, you know. And uh, as life happens, I drew into, um, I, I went into the Army, uh, did uh, Patriot and THAAD missile systems, uh, other missile guidance systems. Uh, and then, again, you know, life just kind of works out. And I ended up in the IT industry. I started going to school uh, whenever I moved up from Louisiana up into uh, New Hampshire. And um, Rogue is actually the result of a research paper in a visit to uh, the MIT Space Conference on March 15, 2019. Um, I went there for eight hours. I met Van Nespavodi, I met uh, several different people, and uh, Van gave me some advice, said, uh, listen, don't worry about the money right now, focus on building a team and find a way to build little robots that can do cool things in space, he says, and you'll do just fine. I said, okay. So I walked out at 4.30. At 4.35, I was on the road, called my partner in my IT company at the time, told him he had uh, till December 31st that I was shutting the company down and going to space. And that was it. That was, that was it. It was the same day. That was it. Wow. Well, that's pretty amazing because in just this last September, you announced that Rogue Space Systems had won a direct to phase two contract from the Department of the Air Force, from AFWorks actually, to develop sensor fusion technology for rendezvous and proximity operations. And I'm going to ask about that in a minute. But mm -hmm. just to make sure that we bring everyone in the audience along when we talk about 
phase awards, you know, phase one, mm-hmm. phase two, and so on. These are designed for small technology businesses. And in That's order right. to receive a direct to phase two award, the business must have already completed certain and verifiable milestones using mm-hmm. money that is not come from the Small Business Administration's Small Business Innovation Research Funding Pot. You'll often hear these contracts referred to as SIBRs or SBIR. The U.S. Space Force likes to use SIBR contracts to get on the floor to, in essence, guide the technology development to fulfill a requirement for a current or future space capability. And your company has certainly received some attention from the Space Force, AFWorks, and Space Works, (laughs) right? In the three or is it four years you've been a company? You know, how many DOD contracts have you signed? Uh, In the past 18 months, a little less than 18 months, we've been awarded uh, 13 phase one contracts, one NSF grant uh, contract, and then uh, one direct to phase two and uh, through AFWorks, and then two uh, sequential phase twos through SpaceWorks. So 17 in less than 18 months. That's pretty amazing. And do you happen to know off the top of your head, I know this is so unfair, but like how much money do they all add up to? Seven point two five million dollars. Dang, that's all right. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot of work that go into these contracts, and to to make this really simple, uh, we use those SIBRs, uh, SBIRs, Small Business Innovation Research, and SIDRs, Small Business Technology Transfer. Uh, they're effectively the same thing. However, the difference between SIBR and SIDR is that with a sitter, you have to partner with a research institution like a university or a nonprofit research firm like a Draper Labs, which we have, um, or some university, right? So, uh, and then there's a certain allocation that you have to give to them through that program. So um, we've been, Rogue prides itself on partnership, right? We pride ourselves on community. We pride ourselves on working with people, not working for people. And that, that's even internal to the culture. Um, we're very much about uh, helping uh, pretty much anybody in the community that actually needs our help. And we've latched on to specific capabilities and technologies that uh, the Space Force and Air Force have really uh, signals that they need. Um, to, so to kind of simplify the way that it works, you have a phase one and the phase one is a feasibility study. Will this actually work? Is there a customer that's out there? Okay. That would use that piece of technology. Your phase two is a prototype of what you proposed in phase one. However, sometimes you get lucky and you already have found a customer and you've already proven that the technology would work. So you have an opportunity to you to go, to a direct to phase two. So you can skip phase one, go straight to phase two. The result of these phase one and phase two opportunities is to eventually get to what they call a phase three. And that phase three is actually not enough. There's still a term, but it's a program of record 
where you have what they call sole source justification, meaning you're the only company that can provide that piece of technology or that service to the Department of Defense. And so that's what we're on track for. And we've been really, really fortunate that and, and very blessed that the Space Force has had the confidence that they uh, have had in us for the past uh, couple of years. And they've continued to award our diligence, our hard work uh, with those contracts. And that's all because of the team uh, that we've put together here at Rogue, 100%. So speaking about the team, you know, you say us a lot and we a lot. So tell us more about Rogue Space Systems. Like, where did it all start? Which you just said it was at MIT, but when and, and how many people were there in the beginning? And how many people do you have now on staff? Because you've definitely have done some growing, no? Yeah, we have a couple of people. So uh, like I said, it, it started off, uh, you know, it really all started March 15th, 2019 at around 4.30 in the afternoon. And to start off, it was me. And then it was myself and Mike Pika, who I met on a steering committee uh, for the local school system. I just, I met him and I was like, so you said you work in 3D printers and you're an engineer. You want to do space stuff? <laughs> and come to find out, uh, Pika is probably one of the most brilliant engineers you'll ever meet. And he was just one of these one of these people that are they're geniuses. And you just they were underutilized. And he is a master of so many different disciplines. He just, it was like a duck to water, you know? Um, and then I had to start managing some of the potential projects and programs. And then, uh, you know, we, I asked uh, John to help us uh, and he became my other co-founder. And then it just kind of grew from there, uh, along with the bat that flew around our office. His name's Barry, by the way, because <laughs> we couldn't afford like, we couldn't afford like really nice offices or anything. So we were leasing space inside of this old mill building and in mill buildings bats love those places so this little bat kept flying around inside of our office and uh, we named him barry and so our first spacecraft is actually named barry and that's what launched uh, this past weekend but now we're we stand at roughly 30 33 people if you account for the two two to four contractors that we have so Full-time employees, I think we're at 27, 28. If you add the contractors in, we're just over 30. Um, and it's actually probably a little bit more than that because we have a lot of lawyers. There's so many lawyers. <laughs> lawyers are important in space. Oh, it's actually gosh. an international law sort of thing. It's a good it thing to have. very much is, yes. Well, was it tough to get traction with private investors being a space company pretty much as far away as you can get from where most space VCs live and work mm -hmm. and operate and invest? Yes. I, I often term Rogue as the dark horse of the space industry. Uh, I really do. Um, you're exactly right. We're not in Colorado. We're not in LA. We're not in Albuquerque. You know, New Mexico. We're not in Florida. We're we're as far removed as as we can uh, as we could be, um, and I think that has uh, it's been both a blessing and a curse in terms of uh, venture capital. 
um, a lot of people really just don't realize exactly how powerful the team that we have is. And because we're not sitting there in uh, the, the, the fray of the, the West Coast and the, the Western United States where most of the, the action is really happening, uh, we get looked over and we get looked past. And um, it has been a very big challenge. It's been a huge challenge, I'd say, uh, especially given the current investor environment uh, with respect to venture capital. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of capital that's just sitting on the sidelines, and um, we've been very fortunate with the investors that we do have, and we're very lucky to uh, have a, a solid term sheet. We're still working to close out that round, and now that we are in um, in space, we actually have heritage with a operating spacecraft. We're hoping that it will be easier. Now they. Okay, I saved my air quotes here. They told us you need to go win some phase one opportunities. We went in 114, and the conversation really didn't change much. Uh, they told us, hey, go win um, uh, a phase two, and it's going to be a lot easier for you to get investors. Well, we went three. <laughs> so uh, then the conversation was that they, said, you just need to get to space. You, you need to get something in space, and then that, that's just going to change everything. And I'm still waiting for they to call. Uh, so we're in space. We're operating. Uh, we're doing pretty dead gum well. And so, uh, yeah, it's been a little bit of a challenge, but uh, we've always per persevered, and we're going to get through this just like we always do. So we will so see what they say. <laughs> Well, we're going to talk about what they should be uh, interested in, because now that we've laid down that foundation, let's talk about Barry One. And I'm not talking about the bat. <laughs> that satellite you just launched, and I do like yes. Barry. I do. Because how could I not? Barry gets one satellite named after it. And another satellite is, well, sort of kind of has at least my name. Not named after me, but has my name. We'll get to that later. But okay. I, I love Remind it. me to let you know what his uh, personality is. We've decided he's going to have a personality. And uh, so we can talk about that later. But uh, yeah, Barry one, Our please continue. Barry one, right? So Barry one just launched, what, a few days ago. It's reached Saturday. orbit. Yep. And it's communicating with you. So it what is. is a Barry satellite and what should the Barry One mission accomplish? Sure. Um, well, to start off with, uh, Barry actually was purely focused on demonstrating uh, our tech, some of our technology, some of our software, uh, a good deal of our hardware, especially with respect to uh, our compute platform. Uh, which is uh, GPU-based, um, and getting a space heritage for the team itself as rogue space systems. Uh, we have a lot of team members that have operated uh, spacecraft and even human missions in, uh, in space. And, uh, but what we needed was rogue space systems to have heritage itself as a company. And so we're check we've checked that box. We're done. We got that. Now, Barry itself, is uh, it was a demonstration? It, it is a demonstration system. However, hopefully in the next week or two, uh, you're going to have to circle back because 
it seems as though our mission is actually changing a little bit uh, because of some things that have occurred. And so uh, it, which is all very exciting. It's all great stuff. It's good you're stuff. You're being opaque. I, you're you're using words be. like things have happened. <laughs> yes, some things like, have occurred. Uh, some events that uh, have uh, transpired. And uh, once once we have uh, uh, all the proper things in place, uh, we'll be able to discuss it more freely. But the mission's actually changing. Uh, but you also time. have a, a commercial customer on board. We I do. Mean, and you, that's, you, and you that's actually, it's, it's, yeah. it's, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's well, payload who's, 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 who's the customer and, and, and what's the payload? Sure, it's uh, it's it's Evo, um, Ivo, um, and they are a propulsion company. They are testing a quantum-based propulsion system that's using some really edgy science uh, to determine whether or not uh, there these uh, quantum principles of propulsion may actually work. Um, Rogue has been hired to to do the science uh, behind that it's uh it's it's their product it's quite brilliant uh we're excited to test it out for them we're hoping that it's a success because it would be a game changer but uh we're gonna have to see what the science says and rogue's gonna do everything we can for for our customer and partner evo to uh make it a success and get them their data uh, so that we can we can figure this out i hope it works everybody hopes it works but uh, yeah, our, our scope on the mission seems to be changing and uh, we do have that payload. And I want to say we have one or two other uh, software payloads as well uh, that we're doing for customers. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's already been a lot of fun uh, just based off of the past couple of days. So the thing that's also pretty interesting about you guys is that you're not interested in building exquisite one-of-a-kind satellites, right? I mean, you want to build a fleet with more than one model. And I'm quite fond, as you all have heard, of the name of your other satellite design, the LoRa series, that is spelled L-A-U-R-A, just like my name. So what's that plan? LoRa is an inspection, observation, and monitoring spacecraft. Um, She can fly up uh, in very close proximity, we're not talking like a thousand kilometers. We're talking ten meters type of close proximity. Um, it has full six degree freedom maneuvering. Um, it has coal gas thrusters. It's got electric propulsion. It is designed to be a very nimble spacecraft that can go and inspect and even diagnose. Uh, another spacecraft in situ and uh, get us information about it so that we can potentially repair or determine whether or not that platform has uh, something that we can um, diagnose or fix. Um, Sometimes you have amplifiers that are blown out on on a satellite and they're transmitting and they can receive, but the power has dropped to where it's only very close to where that satellite is. With LARA, we would be able to pick up that signal in close proximity and then relay so that we can try to help the ground operations, the mission ops, uh, then get control back of that satellite. Um, 
we decided that we were going to do different models in different uh, versions of the spacecraft because we didn't believe there's just a one size fits all. Why would we send a very large, a larger spacecraft at 350, 400 kilograms like Fred to go and do an inspection observation when Laura could do that job at a, a far lower cost? It's a lot lower cost to operate Laura than what it is Fred. So why don't we break up the jobs into the appropriate role? Not okay, only that, I'm going to stop you there, though, because you have mentioned Fred two times now. Yes. And you're going to have to explain Fred first before you go on further. Yeah. So Fred, uh, Fred is our robotic spacecraft with the actual arms and things that can reach out and touch you. So uh, he's one of your robots. But would Orbots, Laura be an yes. o- would La- would Laura also be an Orbot as well? Yes, and now what you're starting to get into is uh, one of the reasons we're doing things the way that we are, because this is an iterative progression of technology. So Barry has technology that we are going to implement directly into Laura. All of the tech that goes into Laura then goes into Fred. And then Fred is the baseline for anything else we might do after that. So it is a iterative, deliberate progression and advancement of capability. So Barry is our little demonstrator, payload hosting type of uh, system. Laura is inspection, monitoring, observation. And then Fred is the uh, robotics. But they're all little robotics, uh, orbot spacecraft that run artificial intelligence and machine learning so that they can make very safe decisions all by themselves in orbit and uh, maintain operations without having to have us continuously talking to them because, you know, the communication in space is a little spotty. Well, that really plus a line of sight sort of issue, but, you know, that, right. that could actually be sorted out somewhat soon as well, considering all the in-space communications um, yes. Yes. architectures that are also being considered and also going up um, so that everybody can talk to everybody and you don't actually have to have a line of sight. Mm-hmm. However, yeah. I'd like to circle back to that latest Cyber contract from AFWorks. It's mm-hmm. a okay. sensor system that you are developing, but what does it actually mean to meld active light detection and ranging sensors with high-resolution cameras? And I guess, and I do mean this is really a guess here, Process the data using a proprietary 3D shape reconstruction algorithm. Uh-oh. Yes, everybody, that is a lot of words. That that is it is English. It doesn't mean that I understand it. I just can say it, and I didn't do it very well. But am I right about that? And how is this? How is the space force hoping to use this technology? Because I imagine this really yes. is for space force at the end of the day, because this is in space domain you know, headed technology. And this is what you just got your most latest uh, cyber contract for. So what is this? Okay. And and who's it going on? Barry, Laura, Fred? Actually, uh, it would be tested on on Laura. Uh, So it would go up with Laura. That phase two is actually just the first step in a process. 
because that is just one piece of the overall capability that we're developing. So what we're doing is this. You have an object or you have a multitude, thousands of objects in space. None of them, almost none of them, probably 0.0.01% are actually designed to be grappled, okay? To, Correct. To be grabbed onto. So how do we solve that problem? Because we can't just go and attach a bunch of different docking plates all the time. We can't do, we just can't, there's just too much. So the way that we're solving that problem, and this is going to start tweaking your noodle a little bit, the, we're taking the, the, the data and the imaging and the scanning that we're doing, and we're fusing all of that together in order to, in situ, on our spacecraft, create a 3D model of that object on our spacecraft. Through artificial intelligence, machine learning, we would run an algorithm against that model to determine, based off of the material, based off of uh, stress points and, and things of that nature, the best spot to actually grapple and get a hold of that other object. But here's Gen the trick. Gently hug. Very gently. But the thing is, is that you can't just take pretty much any end effector and just go grab a hold of it, right? You just that, That's just not going to happen. So the solution that Rogue came up with is the next step, which is step three in the process. So we scan the object. The next piece is we create a model. And then the third piece is we 3D print in situ the end effector that we would use to then grab safely that object. Now, so end effector. Sorry, but end effector. I'm so sorry to cut you off there, but just no, so okay. you bring bringing everybody along. End effector is. It's like your hand. At the end of the robot arm, you have a a, a mechanism that you attach to it, and by attaching to it, you can have a claw there. You can put a sensor at the end of that arm. But with our stuff, we're, we're able to change out the end of that, uh, of that arm so we can swap it out for a different, uh, a different object or for a different end effector. So we can do different things. Sometimes we might just need a flashlight. So there's an end effector that's a flashlight. And so what you're saying is that you're going to be able to use the high-resolution cameras, the light detection light, ranging light sensors, yep. Yep. you know, and the proprietary 3D shape reconstruction algorithm to print in mm -hmm. situ yep. what you need for an indefector, a.k.a. a hand of a sort, mm -hmm. to use with the target object. That is Most correct. likely being a satellite. More than likely, yes. That's what we're doing. That is the point of all that. If you look at the different sitters and sitters that we've won, you'll start to see a theme around everything. So this is a safe way of grappling and touching another object. But one of the dirty secrets of satellite servicing or space debris removal or anything like that in space is if you're going up to that object, chances are it is an uncontrolled object. 
So it would probably be in a tumble. It might be a fast tumble. It might be in a slow tumble, but in a tumble nonetheless. So one of the things that we've uh, been working on with University of Utah uh, is designing an end effector, a tool that we put at the end of our uh, robot arms that would detumble a tumbling object without touching it. And we would, yep, it's real, it works, and it, it we are actually uh, doing the testing with the prototype in the lab right now at University of Utah. It works. And that is projecting magnetic fields through the metallic structure of the object. And even though it's non-conductive metal, it creates these eddy currents. And by generating those eddy currents, we can influence the movement of that object in six axes. And so we're designing the algorithms and the control methods and the movements in order to be able to do that, again, safely, sustainably, right? Then you layer on top of it another tech that we're developing. Uh, we just got awarded for laser Doppler vibrometry, okay? And what we do with that is you take a laser, and everybody's seen the spy movies. You take a laser, you laser it onto a piece of glass, and then you can hear the conversation inside the room. Well, we took that idea and said, you know what? Right now, if you take your ear, you put it up against the wall, you hear the electric hum of your house. Well, if we use artificial intelligence and machine learning to decipher that hum, you can know what light got turned on. You can know what appliance got turned on in your house, same exact concept. So we were able to successfully detect electronic signals, vibrations off of a piece of electronics here on the ground at a pretty decent distance. It was not very close. It was, it was a good bit away. And we were able to hear the hum of those electronics. And that's before we really start putting any rogue uh, brain power into it. So our next, uh, so we design, we we were able to so, demonstrate. So the point of that would be to determine what's on the inside. Not only just, but diagnose it without touching it, because one of the most dangerous things you could do in space is touch something. So if we can be at a standoff distance from that object, and we can perform diagnosis of that other spacecraft without connecting to it, without having to physically touch it. It's safer, it's sustainable, and we're not putting that customer's asset at any more risk than what's absolutely necessary. And we also protect ourselves. So we don't have to worry about things breaking off, we don't have to worry about getting too close and bumping something. That's a diagnosis we can do uh, at a standoff distance. So that's the theme. If you look at all the tech we've been developing is making things safe, making things sustainable, doing and performing uh, in-space servicing in a very safe and sustainable way. So that's our theme. Lastly, and especially as the Barry One launched aboard a SpaceX rocket, Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about Starship? The second test flight is slated to happen pretty much the same day or just week. after this podcast post. So, mm -hmm. you know, what, if anything, would Starship mean to your business and the very young in-space servicing, manufacturing, and assembly market? 
What would this so, mean if it, if this is successful and, and happens? Well, I think if you, if you, again, I go back to the transport, uh, the train analogy, right? What happened with trade in uh, the American West or across the oceans when better, bigger, faster ships were created? You know, we replaced the wagon train with uh, actual railroad cars. They, there stands a real possibility if history continues to repeat itself, and I believe it will, Starship is going to be that really huge catalyst for these things to, for that to happen. Uh, launch costs historically has been the biggest hurdle that we have to get over. And SpaceX has done a great, Gwen and Elon and, and all those guys have done a phenomenal job of getting us to the point that we're at. And now we're about to, they're about to drive that cost down an order of magnitude lower. I think once the, the, the world realizes exactly what it, what it is and what it does for us in terms of uh, cost savings, I think that once the, the next generation that is coming up with their imagination understands what it means, and these brilliant people from all over the world realize what they could do with that tool, what Starship is and what it's capable of. I think the ideas are really going to start coming through because they will see how it's economically feasible to put themselves, put their idea into space. I, I have long believed, and I, I continue to say, one of the biggest problems the space industry has is people, kids especially, even adults, they don't understand how close they are to space. They don't understand how close, how, how I, I explain it to my own kids. You're closer to space sitting in my house than you are to Boston. You, you, you can, that, that's, and you, once you put it into a concept that they can actually understand, then it's like, wait a minute, we're how close? That, wait, really? You're only a hundred kilometers away. And I think those triggers, you have things like Starship, you have things like that simple example of how close a city is. Those are the triggers that the space industry needs to encourage uh, to everyone to understand so that they can, that we can all capitalize uh, on things like Starship. Uh, what it means for us is they're going to put a lot more mass into orbit. Uh, in 2022, we had more mass flown into orbit by the end of that year, in one year, than all of the mass combined in the previous 60, 70 years of space exploration. So one Starship goes up, and once it's functional, they get that into a cadence. We are going to be really busy uh, because, let's face it, there's going to get a mess that has to get picked up. And while that is not all Rogue does, we're not just a space debris company. It's one of the things that we can do and we are prepared to do. Um, but it's not all we do. All in all, it's exciting, but it's also a little worrisome. Well, let's also let's be a little careful. Uh, and let's be responsible on how we use this this new uh, this new uh, technology. So I'm excited about what the future holds. I'm going to be tuning in and watching Starship just like everybody else. And 
I really hope it doesn't throw nearly as many rocks as what it did before. Um, it's a hell of a way to dig a hole. I mean, <laughs> it's, they had to dig the hole anyway, right? They needed the hole there. I got to tell you, that's a hell of a way to dig a hole. <laughs> I, holy cow. <laughs> so I'm excited to see what happens. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thank you so much for making the time to come on the Downlink Podcast. Uh, I couldn't be happier to be here. Thank you so much, Laura. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the Downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.